privilege and responsibility to speak to you all today about black embodiment. And because today is Mother's Day, one of my most favorite days of the year, and for me, uh, and for me, these two core parts of my identity, being both a black woman and also being a mom, are not only inextricably linked, together they fuel the essence of my existence. So therefore, I have chosen to speak not only about black embodiment, but specifically what it means to parent black bodies. And as I was preparing for my talk today, I thought a lot about my core messages and what I would want to share with you all. And I decided that the very best place for me to begin is to tell you a little bit about my family. Because my husband and I, Eli, together we have the responsibility of parenting three children. The youngest of our children is seven months old, Emerson Grace. She's our baby girl, and she loves music, dancing with her older brother, Elijah, and attending baby classes that are taught by her big sister, Ella. And it's worth noting that these classes not only include lesson plans, but a chalkboard and the whole kit and caboodles that teachers need to be successful in the classroom. <laughs> and Ella McKell, she's our precocious seven-year-old. She loves reading, she loves gymnastics, and as I already shared, she loves teaching Emerson everything she learns at school. Our oldest child is Elijah, Elijah Masai. He is 10 years old, and he loves basketball, potty humor, <laughs> and his five godbrothers who reside in Ohio, right outside of Oberlin College. You see, Elijah and his five godbrothers, they've been very close friends since birth. Since college, our families have vacationed together every single summer and also every winter. And for Elijah, who is most often surrounded by women at home, he couldn't possibly enjoy his time more than when he is with his five godbrothers. And I wanted to share with you just a little bit of what these young men have in common, just to put it in context. They are all academic scholars. In school, they are often identified as young people who are high achieving. They understand the importance and value of hard work, whether it's in the classroom or helping out at home. With some support and coaxing from their parents, of course, they're able to focus to accomplish their goals. And these young men, they love sports, and they play them passionately. From lacrosse to baseball to basketball, these young men leave it all on the floor, as they say. And these young men also play instruments. Among the six of them, we have an ensemble, you should know. And this includes the piano, the trumpet, the drums, and even a classical guitar. Our boys also demonstrate kindness and thoughtfulness. They understand what it means, even at their young ages, to be leaders who are empathetic and helpful to others. They take care of each other and are known to look out for classmates, friends, and anyone deemed vulnerable or unable to defend for themselves. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that our boys, like most children, can be completely immature. They certainly know their potty language, as I mentioned earlier, and they do tend to use it at the most inopportune times. <laughs> and of course, as parents, we find ourselves, as parents often do, reminding them to keep it down and could you stop roughing around so much and please don't forget there are little kids nearby. So, telling you about Elijah, Josiah, Jair, Jael, Joel, and Jeremiah, 
feels like exactly the right place to begin this morning. Because every parent here today understands what it means to love your children passionately. And every parent here knows the aspirations that we all hold in our heart for our children. What every parent here may not know, however, is the anxiety, fear, and concern for safety most black parents uniquely feel for their children and how this feeling accosts me and most black parents in communities across the country when our six boys are together and are out in the world doing something as simple and mundane as walking down the street armed with a smile and a basketball. You see, just a few weeks ago in Grand Rapids, Michigan, five brown boys, all between the ages of 12 to 14, so very similar ages to Elijah and his godbrothers, they did just, just this exact thing. I'm going to show you the video of what happened to these five boys, in part because it is illustrative of the experiences so many black boys have daily with the police. It's an experience that at times can subjugate our boys and makes them vulnerable to the discriminatory practices of law enforcement. I'm also showing you this video because it underlines the fear. The fear, pain, and anguish black parents feel, including the powerlessness they experience when their children are the arbitrary victims of discrimination. See, when you parent black bodies, the visceral and daily feel, fear you have for their well-being is anchored in the concern that others will not see the humanity, the humanity in the youth, the youth of your child. And so you hope that a police officer or some other ranking official with authority will look to see your child is exactly that, a child. And as a parent, you nurture their youthfulness to be sure. And at the same time, you also parent to the aspiration of who they will become, who they will grow to be, and what they will achieve. Because as I know I share with many parents in this room today, you parent with the hope for a high-quality education, good health, and to live a life filled with dignity, respect, and a meaningful contribution to society. So I'm going to play the video but I need to encourage you to do a few things before this video begins. I need you to listen. Listen to the young boys as they ask, what did we do? Listen as one of the little boys weeps with an urgent and palpable fear for his life. Watch as a few of the boys are conflicted about what they should actually do with their bodies and how they respond to the police officer who, by the way, catches them completely off guard with his gun drawn as he approaches them. Watch the video at the end. Listen as the mom of one of the boys, she tries her best to express her anger and to also suppress it. Watch as she tries her best to do both of these things together at the same time, these two things that conflict with each other. Now let's watch the video together.
So before I dissect the video from a black parent perspective and walk you through the nuances of parenting a black body, I do want to go on record stating that it's, I do want to go on record stating that I realize that as you watch this video, it's possible to think to yourself, but Monique, surely this doesn't happen over the time. Or perhaps you're being hyperbolic. Except there are too many incidences, too many times when young children have died at the hands of police officers. And because there are too many to enumerate, and also my aim today is to talk about parenting the black body, I'm going to simply call out some names of the most high-profile shootings of young black boys, mostly to underline my point that violent deaths of black boys not only happens too frequently, it also happens at a disproportionate rate when compared to other groups and identities. To date, we've witnessed the premature death due to police violence of Tamir Rice, a 12-year-old boy who was shot on sight in Cleveland, Ohio. The police mistook his toy gun for a real one. Michael Brown, 18, was shot and killed in Ferguson, Missouri for allegedly stealing cigarillos from a local convenience store. Tony Robinson, 19, was shot and killed by a Madison police officer who was responding to reports that someone was disrupting traffic. The police alleged that Robinson assaulted an officer who shot him three times and killed him, although Robinson was unarmed. I could go on. I could name many other black boys and even men who have died at the hands of police violence. But I think my point is clear. As a mother parenting black children, I have the responsibility to prepare them for the fact that the world may choose to either not see or outrightly deny the humanity of their black bodies. And for my son, it's almost inevitable that the day will come when he will transition from the really cute, smart, and loving boy filled with joy to a menacing boy who's threatening to the police and possibly even to the members of the community who have known him his whole life? So one of the first questions to ask yourself as you watch this video is, what is our physiological response to danger? When we feel threatened, is there an automatic response that our brains or bodies have to danger? And yes, of course there is. Like everyone in this room knows, our physiological response to danger is flight or fight. According to Harvard Medical School, the response to stress begins in our brain. When someone confronts an oncoming danger, both the eyes and the ears send information to the amygdala and the area of the brain that contributes to emotional processing. The amygdala, the amygdala interprets the image and the sounds. When it perceives danger, it instantly sends a distress signal to the hypothalamus. And this area of the brain functions like a command center, communicating with the rest of the body through the nervous system so that the person has the energy to fight or to flee. And this response is so ingrained in us, it's automatic. Without even consciously thinking, our body walks through all of those steps that I just mentioned. And it does so compliantly. Except in the instance of the video that I just showed you, in order for those black children to remain safe, to live through what was surely at that point on that day, on March 24th, the scariest experiences of their young lives, those boys had to suppress their physiological response to danger. 
So here you have one of the requirements of parenting a black body. I must teach my children to somehow circumvent and even suppress the automatic physiological response to danger so that they can return home safely. If one of those boys had gotten up to run or even come closer to the police officer to plead his case, which of course our brains and our bodies are actually wired to do, the entire situation could have gone completely differently. The other point about parenting black bodies and what we must prepare our children to do in order to return home safely is to overcome the natural and developmental process of brain development, particularly in the adolescent years, so that our children are more able to control their impulses and demonstrate behaviors and decision making that is actually mature beyond their years. According to the Annie Casey Foundation, in their research on adolescent brain development, it is during adolescence that early and, and early adulthood that we develop a personal sense of identity, we establish emotional and psychological independence, we adopt a personal value system, and develop increased impulse control. And according to the National Coalition of Juvenile Justice, we now know that young people's brains, the brains of our children, are different from adults both structurally and in how they are impacted by chemicals produced by the body, including fear. So what does all this mean when parenting a black body? It means that my children, they have to understand that a law officer or some other adult with authority may not see the child in my children in their transgressions, especially at the tender ages of 10, 12, or 14, as we saw in the video, which at such a young age are likely more a function of immaturity in a brain that is still developing than malintent. They may not be measured against what we know about adolescent brain development and how it impairs judgment. My son may not be taken as an immature young man who was just being silly, or even a child who simply made a mistake, like white boys his age. And should this happen to Elijah, or any one of his godbrothers. Remember these young boys who are academic scholars and baseball players? A big brother who dances to make his baby sister smile and has given the winning game ball to his sister just so that she could feel included? Any one of these boys, if this should happen to them, they could not only lose their freedom, but they may lose their life. So you know, as I watch the video and reflect on what took place, there are two things that linger the most in my heart. The first is of the young boy wailing. In the video, his fear is hanging in the air like a fog. And that fog is so thick, you can't even see around it or make your way through it. How can his body go on to recover from such a deep fear? And the second thought I have, it's about that mom. You can see the rage and the anger, the desperation and even the sadness in her face and her body movements as she's talking to the police officer after the whole ordeal. You can visibly see her attempts at self-control, the tempering and the management of rage and fury that must show up actually as very respectful, even patient urgency in order to shepherd her child and even herself home safely. And after it was all over, 
After the police went home and her son was safely in bed asleep, out of harm's way for the evening, what did she do with all that rage, I wonder? What did she do with all the pain she felt in that moment, and likely for the balance of the evening, the week, the month, and possibly years? And then I began to think about the disproportionate life outcomes of black women. And I know there is a high correlation between our life outcomes and the stress we experience daily that we carry within our bodies as women of color. And this stress, it can be toxic. And for those who are pregnant and parenting, it may also become part of our pregnancy in the everyday lived experiences we have as black women. In 2015, the Midwives Alliance of North America, along with several other institutions and organizations, conducted a study on racial disparities in birth outcomes. They found that more than 16% of African American women, excuse me, African American infants born in 2013 were preterm compared to 10% of white infants born preterm. African American infants have reported higher rates, African American infants have reported higher rates of preterm birth since the Center for Disease Control began comparing this, this data back in 1981. And this disparity persists even after researchers control for confounding medical and sociodemographical risk factors such as low income, low education, alcohol, and tobacco use. And it's also worth noting that in order to explain these persistent disparities in health outcomes, researchers now theorize that racism serves as a chronic source of stress, which negatively impacts the body's hormonal levels and can initiate the physical mechanisms that lead to preterm birth. So when we turn this data back on the black mom in the video, in my quiet moments of reflection, I think to myself that the entire incident likely reduced her lifetime health due to how the body internalizes stress. And so now you have the paradox of black parenting laid out before you. As the mom herself explained to the police officer, this is why I don't let my child go anywhere. But at the same time, she did let him go to the park. Because of course, she fears for his safety, and all the while, she needs him to also be a 12-year-old boy. You see, parenting black bodies requires us to teach our children how to circumvent their physiological processes, as I've already said, and demonstrate maturity beyond the development of their brains. Thinking about these two realities and what it requires to raise healthy, socially, emotionally well children boils up a question in my heart and mind. See, because I understand fundamentally what it is that I must first learn how to do and then teach my children to do as well. And it is how, how to live freely within their black bodies. This is the quintessential question we wrestle with as black parents. We have to be aware of the fact that at any time, at any moment, our black bodies and the black bodies of our partners and our children may be subjugated to violence. And we must ruthlessly pursue the answer to how we can still, in spite of possible or imminent violence, live freely. As I ponder this question, I turn to two of the greatest literary minds that I know of, 
including author James Baldwin and ta Coates. In fact, as they pursued the answer to the question of how to live freely in the black body, both of these authors are on the same page in many ways. So to begin, both of these authors wrote letters to the young men in their lives. For James Baldwin, it was to his 15-year-old nephew. And for Ta-Nehisi Coates, it was to his 15-year-old son. James wrote his letter in 1963, and Coates wrote his several decades later in 2015. And both of these authors and these letters to the young men that they love, they communicate such joy and passion and aspirations. These things are palpable. Coates reminds us that black people love their children with obsession. And Baldwin, in reflecting on the moment that his nephew was born into the world, writes, and here you were to be loved, to be loved, baby, hard at once and forever to strengthen you against the loveless world. These words not only underscore the love black parents have for their children, but also the paradox of raising our beloved children in a world that may not love them back and, again, may not see their humanity. And on this subject, Coates goes on to note that the lack of love, the fact that the world does not see the humanity in our children, is the unfortunate and immutable fact of race. And in one of his most gripping and powerful lines, Coates reminds his son that this is because race is the child of racism, not the father. Also, both authors are honest with these young men. Writing to these young men when they're 15 years old means that these young men are on the cusp of their own awakening. They are awakening to the injustices that black people endure, and it is because of this moment of awakening in their lives that they are receiving these letters from their beloved elders. And for both of these young men, who cannot possibly have the same relationship with race as their father and their uncle had, because you see, every generation changes. Every generation experiences shifts in ideologies. The knowledge that these young men have of racial injustice is actually coupled with their own understanding and sense-making of the grandness of the world and the opportunities that it's already afforded them or may afford them in the future. And at the same time, this understanding, this joy that these young men and excitement they might actually have about what possibilities life may contain is actually juxtaposed with understanding how some of their white counterparts may actually take freedom for granted every day and also the fact that their white friends will likely never ever have to reconcile the killing of Tamir Rice, Trayvon Martin, or Michael Brown in such a deeply affronting and intimately haunting way as Baldwin's nephew, Coates' son, or my Elijah. And so it is that Coates and Baldwin lay out in a very similar fashion and in ways that are together honest, direct, and unflinchingly painful the paradox black parents experience in reconciling the all-consuming love and aspirations they have for their children, just like the parents in this room today, and also the vulnerability and frailty of their children within their black bodies. After laying out this paradox in ways that are poignant and even hauntingly similar, especially in light of the fact 
that there's more than half a decade separating when these two messages were written. Their advice on the question of how to live freely in the black body is where these two authors diverge. For Baldwin, in spite of the history of racism in the United States, he implores his nephew to embrace self-love, the love of others, and his human dignity. He encouraged a younger James to wield his own power and agency and to walk forthright into the responsibility to help make America what it must become. Baldwin never attempts to deny the pain of the black-lived experience. On the contrary, he writes to his nephew that you were born into a society in which you were not expected to aspire to excellence and you were expected to make peace with mediocrity. Baldwin also repeatedly reminds his nephew of his power. <laughs> in fact, Baldwin posits that it is precisely because black people have endured and even triumphed in the face of such low expectations and oppression that his nephew has an important role to play in bringing about the revolutionary change that is necessary in America. Baldwin reminds all of us that we can and we have the responsibility to defy expectations. We cannot wait for our society to become just and moral, and instead we must engage in the thoughtful and meaningful action that is necessary to bring about this change. Now, Tanakowski Coates has a different point of view. And while Coates' advice to his son is altogether honest, complex, and vast, and it's not possible for me to sum it up in today's speech, I want to lay it out amongst two key ideas, including the fallacy and downright destructive nature of the American dream, and also the responsibility his son has to forego the dream and to instead embrace the struggle. In regard to the American dream, Coates is openly critical of the American dream and makes the direct connection that the dream is, resp is responsible for the subjugation of blacks and especially the plunder of black bodies. And Coates urges his son not to struggle for the dreamers because according to Coates, the dreamers have to understand that the field for the dream, the stage where they have painted themselves white, is the deathbed for us all. And so Coates urges his son to forego the dream and to embrace the struggle. And for Coates, like so many of us, the struggle is the question I raised earlier, how to live free in our black bodies. It is how to carve out our full humanity with complete dignity within our black bodies, our rightful place in society and in a society that has historically subjugated and rebuffed black people. See, this is the moral and philosophical question of our time. And the intellectual exchange of responses to this question, which began long before Coates or Baldwin experienced their own awakenings, dates back to the beginning of slavery and the early concept of race as a means to subvert one group over another. And it has included such great minds as Sojourner Truth, Ida B. Wells, Frederick Douglass, and W.E.B. Du Bois, to name a few. And Coates doesn't offer a definitive answer. Instead, for Coates, the answer is the struggle and seeking wisdom in the journey to learn. So for me, as I make meaning of what these two writers offer in regard to parenting a black body, I embrace both perspectives. I believe that we have to teach our children 
that on one side of the coin, that is the American dream, is opportunity. The possibility that one person both can and should determine their best path and seek opportunities that not only resonate with them, but allow them to live a life with dignity and meaning and relevancy and even impact, it's critical. And on the other side of the coin, our children must understand the perversion, even the destruction of black bodies that has been, since the founding of this country, part of the American dream. The dream has always cost a significant amount, and black people have, for more than 250 years, paid a disproportionate brunt of these costs. So understanding the history of this country, the struggle for wisdom, as Coates notes, is critical to how our children must find their own paths. And so dating back all the way to the transatlantic slave trade, the Civil War, Reconstruction, Jim Crow, civil rights, and even our present times, from a historical perspective, it's just so critical for our children to know, to inform their awakenings, so that they understand the nuanced complexity and richness that is our history, as they make meaning of how they will live freely in their black bodies. And in this way, I agree with Coates. And at the same time, with all my heart, I tell you that I need my children to raise their consciousness, resist, rebel, and organize with those who not only have shared their lived experience, but also with those who share their values and their vision for a just, equitable, and inclusive society. Our children must know the power of their own agency and be the authors of their own destinies. And in this way, I also agree with Baldwin. And I will tell you that I am so thankful that as I wrestle with this question as a parent and my husband and I stay up at late night talking about the different affronts, micro and macro aggressions that we experience, that we have the company of Baldwin and Coates to help us along our journey. So in closing, I'd like to leave you with some final thoughts and a very specific call to action. It is my hope that as you work to continue to make our world, our city, and our local neighborhoods across the district more equitable and inclusive, that you will hold these messages, that you will hold them in your hearts. And over time, maybe they can become part of how we all together make this world a more just place for all of us, and especially for our black children. To begin, we need a multi-generational organizing strategy that places equity, justice, and inclusion at the center of our vision for how we want to be in community with each other. We must, for the sake of ourselves and for the sake of our children, begin to articulate not only what we stand for and what we want to begin together, we must also articulate and be explicit about what we stand against and what together we are seeking to put an end to. And if we are serious, truly serious about equity, justice, and inclusion, then I need all of my brothers and sisters to vigorously and ruthlessly interrogate your privilege. As Martin Luther King said, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied to a single destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. And our goal to build an equitable, just, and inclusive community, we must accept complexity as an invitation to dive deeper, to have difficult conversations, and to 
honestly and intentionally deconstruct concepts of race and power, we must know that in doing so, we free ourselves from the oppressive nature of these constructs, and at the same time, we also help the next generation. Because you see, every successive generation is able to be less mired in the historical construct of race and the confines of power. And so there we have an opportunity, especially as the demographics of our country shifts in the years ahead. And we cannot forget about our girls, my Ella or my Emmy. I spent a lot of time today talking about our boys, but research actually tells us that our black girls are on the front line of the school to prison pipeline. For example, we know that while black girls make up just 16% of all female high school students, they account for almost 50% of school-related arrests. Based on this, we have to intentionally, with love and compassion, be the keeper of our girls, especially our black girls. And if I have so far been speaking to how we must move our hearts and minds forward, then I implore all of you Please aggregate your energy, aggregate your influence, aggregate your expertise to change our systems. See, our institutions, structures, and systems are inherently racist. And as we watched events unfold in places like Ferguson and Baltimore, we know that attitudes, policies, and systems intersected to create places of deep poverty that over time festered into the turmoil that unfolded in those communities and continues to do so in many communities today. And when we look at past policies, laws, and even stimulus programs, which were on their face race neutral, like the GI Bill, which came out of President Roosevelt's New Deal, we know that over time, these programs serve to privilege one group while also undermining opportunities for others. These laws created disproportionate outcomes, which today are inextricably linked to the wealth gap, the achievement gap, and so many other gaps that subject our children to social, emotional, physical violence. See, these laws were not accidentally made. We didn't randomly land where we are today. And so to move forward, we will have to be just as intentional about creating the policies, laws, and economic agendas that are just, inclusive, and equitable and we must create opportunity for all, not just for one. Finally, I want to call out that I have been very purposeful about expressing the fear and even rage I sometimes experience as I parent black bodies. I want to acknowledge that I have not only shared the fear and rage with you, with the full thoughtfulness and complexity of how I experience these feelings, but I have also shared it with you in the hope, with the intention that you too can share in this rage with me. As a white person, I need you to keep the terror and the rage that I have shared today regarding the experiences me, other parents, and so many of our black children face. I need you to keep it front and center and never lose sight of it. My call to action is that you allow it to fuel your justice and your equity work. Just as I have intentionally shared my fear and anger with you, I implore you to carry these feelings into your work and into the world. This work, the work we must do together to create a world in which black children and all of our children can live freely in their bodies, was so perfectly summed up by James Baldwin when he said, for these all 
are our children. We will profit by or pay for what they become. Thank you.